Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board. Let's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. So, Will, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing just fine. I've got a question for you. Gun to your head, you got to pick one, one, and I mean one, no hedging, no, eh, eh, eh. one ice cream flavor. What are you going with? Cookie dough. Cookie Vanilla dough. with the cookie dough pieces in it. Yeah. Love it. Uh, yeah. Especially because uh, since Amber is a little bit lactose intolerant, we get, you know, the non-dairy ice creams. Which are, you know, if you've never had them and you're at all concerned, they're actually, generally speaking, pretty good. But the addition of the cookie dough in the non-dairy vanilla is quite good. It's it's the different texture that's nice because, like, it's it's a it's a little chewy, but it's not it's not like the caramel where you have. Very nice butter pecan, butter pecan. Another that's what I'd go with choice. While it is not ice cream, also huge fan of mango sorbet. But it is not ice cream, so when it comes to a flavor of ice cream, it is the vanilla cookie dough. I'm also partial to anything that mixes uh, chocolate and peanut butter as an ice cream, which is uh, which is what I got when we went to that uh, very nice place up in uh, New Jersey. Right, and that's where I got their mango sorbet. Ah, uh-huh. because so with these two flavors, funny. Amber is allergic to mangoes, so I can't have the mango sorbet when I'm near her because if I, you know, lean over and kiss her on the cheek and I've got the mango on my lips, her cheek will blow up from the contact. You little poison ivy, you. And uh, Laura is uh, has a peanut allergy, so if I, you know, happened to kiss her, if I had um, just had peanuts, uh, her throat would close up. So... Yeah, uh, neither of those things. It's fun to be able to, you know, have different things that one can eat with different people. All the dietary sensitivities of the people around me. And me, who just has a dietary sensitivity to bell peppers, which is easier to avoid. Not an allergy, just a dietary sensitivity upsets my stomach terribly. Same way with uh, with me for garlic. Hmm. The human body is a strange thing. Ah, whole kit and caboodle of mysteries and misery, Matt. Yeah, but but it could be worse. We could get really cold and we could just, you know, completely freeze up and fall over. Aha, I saw that segue coming. <laughs> yep. So, yes, we're segueing right into the episode. With that particular segue, let's see if you know, some of you might be know where I'm going. Or if you listen to last Ooh. week's episode and remember the end, you'll also Ooh. know where I'm going. Scott Snyder. That's who, uh, because this week uh, we're reading three stories by probably the most important bat writer of the past 15 years, Scott Snyder. We are beginning with The Court of Owls. Ooh, very good. This is Batman Volume 2, numbers 1 to 11. The writer is Snyder with backups by Snyder and James Tiny in the fourth. Pencils by Greg Capullo and the backups by Raphael Albuquerque. Inks by Jonathan Glapian and the backups are inked by Albuquerque. 
colors by FCO Plasencia and Dave McCaig with the backups by Nathan Fairbairn and McCaig. Letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Jimmy Betancourt and backups by Pat Brousseau and Desi Sienti. Edited by Mike Morris, Janelle Aslan, Katie Kubert, and Harvey Richards. The cover dates are November of 2011 to September of 2012. Beware the court of owls that watches all the time, ruling Gotham from shadowed perch behind granite and lime. They watch you at your hearth, they watch you in your bed. Speak not a whispered word of them, or they'll send the talon for your head. That's just a fucking fairy tale. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking of going with my normal synopsis, but I was like, I'm not going to have the excuse to drop the nursery rhyme in there, and I want to read a menacing nursery rhyme, so we're putting that there in the normal synopsis spot. But yeah, this is the story of Batman fighting a secret cult society that has been part of Gotham from the beginning of the city. The Court of Owls is probably the most important villainous concept introduced in the Batman books since their inception at the beginning of the New 52. Since the New 52. I can't think of any other villains who have been created since then who are anywhere near as interesting as the court. Uh, let's see. Court of Owls, absolutely strong, number one, especially as they are starting to make their way into other adaptations. I'd have to say Batman Who Laughs is probably two. Yeah. And there's, there's a wide gulf between those. Yeah, and then a pretty wide gulf in between them and... Punchline? Bloom? Bloom or Punchline? Yeah, so ugh, again, it's it's it'd be hard to round out a top five. If they had done more with him as a character, Simon Saint had potential, but then they killed him right off. Oh, and, it's such a punchable little face. Yeah, and it was a disappointment because they teased at the end of Fear State Alpha that he was going to go and work for Waller, and then he gets killed in custody. Peacekeeper won, but now they seem to be moving the anti-hero route with him, putting him on Stormwatch. Mm. But they're they're going black ops government thing, so even anti-hero there is is dicey. He's a bad guy killing people for the government. The gardener, I don't think, or Miracle Molly, both more are in the anti-hero camp versus villain camp. Obscure trivia questions camp. Yeah, until they use either of them potentially anywhere else. And failsafe, same. I don't think we've we've gotten enough of failsafe to see where failsafe would figure in that. But but we can talk about all of this another time because there's a lot I, to talk about in the Court of Owls. I, I will say this, and it does tie into Court of Owls. Reading Court of Owls made me pine for good ongoing bat books i I think detective is a currently well yeah the detective is good i mean like like a seriously like the bat title like chip even tom king even tinian's work did not grab me as going back and rereading this grabbed me like this this is a good blend of storytelling and action and depth i mean this is an arc 
that goes on for 11 monthly issues. Like when was the last time we had that in, you know, a bat book? Uh, again, when I say bat book, I tend to mean Batman. Proper. Okay. King stuff blended. Cause he did a lot of two or three issues that were bits of a larger puzzle. The Superman Batman team up with the double date with Lois and Selena. Then the Superman Wonder Woman, but Superman Wonder Woman, Batwoman Wonder Woman team up that was after that. Then the Batman Talia thing. Those were like mini, mini arcs that became something bigger. City of Bane was eight. But again, that didn't stretch over a year. That was no. double shipping. Very true. This was this was a year. And we could have included issue 12, the sort of epilogue that has Harper Rowe, but we're going to do that in a different episode about the sidekicks of the New 52 and Rebirth. And this is the pinnacle of Scott Snyder's Batman. Yes. The, his Bruce Wayne. I, I'm looking forward to us reading Black Mirror. Because I remember Black Mirror being incredible, but that's a Grayson and a Jim Gordon story. It's not, Bruce is barely in Black Mirror. But yeah, this is, for the start of a run, the problem here is you start your run off this strong, there is nowhere to go but down. Yeah, it's it's, it's unfortunate. And uh, as we've talked about before, I mean, this, this ends in some places that I don't care for. To, to to start with this and end with Mecha Bat, oh man, what 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 are you doing with your life, really? I mean, I think we'll we'll get to Death of the Family and Endgame, and it's again. I remember enjoying both of them more than Super Heavy, but we'll see how they stand up on a reread. This stands up very well. On yep. the yep. We will be talking about theme a lot here because we're looking at three stories by the same writer. Two written and scripted and one plotted by Snyder tonight. But Snyder fascinates me as a writer because he more than any other writer I can think of, puts his themes really heavily into his work in a way that is not obnoxious. And what Scott Snyder does is Scott Snyder writes for catharsis. Scott Snyder's stories are always about whatever his fears are. You'll see it if you read a lot of the horror stuff he's writing now. Night of the Ghoul and We Have Demons. Noctera. But you can see in this and in the third story we're covering tonight that Snyder is working through his personal demons. That there's a point when Bruce is giving a speech and he specifically says something to the effect of asking about what Gotham is, is pointless. Because when we do that, all we will see are our own demons. But we have to look to the future to see something great. And I think Snyder 
as a writer is often looking at what is and all he sees are the demons. It's a lot to take in. Yeah, I, I, I see that. And I also see in these stories a preoccupation with maybe history and destiny and how those things may be intertwined. How are we, are we uh, not captains of our own fate? Uh, and I think that's an interesting concept across these three stories. These three work really well in conversation with each other. That they do. There were probably bigger stories that we could have taken for the middle slot here. We could have gone back to Black Mirror. We could have jumped forward to Last Night on Earth or some of the Justice League stuff or Batman Who Laughs. But I like the way that that second story, which technically came out first, which did come out first, informs this. But this is the big one. This is the one that you're paying admission to hear us talk about because this is one of the biggest Batman stories of, if not the biggest Batman story since the New 52. This story is another of those tales of Bruce being run to the point of breaking because he absolutely does not believe the court of owls is real. Not in my city. He couldn't get anything past me. And he underestimates them and they come close to breaking him. There are some bits that remind me of the cult. The court of owls is doing something like what Deacon Blackfire did to Bruce. You can see here right at the beginning, so much of what Snyder will be continuing to discuss in his run, because so much of his run is about Bruce and Alfred. And we get a lot of that here. You can see it even at the very beginning when he's put in these heads-up display contact lenses with facial recognition. And you're getting little mm. blurbs and you see, you know, Dick and Tim and Damien security clearance high. Then when he looks at Alfred. Highest. Clearance. Yes. It shows you just how key to his life Alfred is. That Alfred is the most important person in his life. He is his father. And we, we both say we're both story guys. But. Capullo's art in this is stunning. Two thoughts on the art. I'm not a big fan of his faces. Okay. They 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 look a little, I don't know, clay-like. Just the the definition is not there. And I feel like I need to see these in print because the colors seem off. I think we were still early in the digital transition game and I, I know reading this on ipad the dimensions are off it, it doesn't seem like a contemporary digital transfer so i'm just curious about the colors because to me the colors seem washed out faded not as for lack of a better word vibrant as what i'd want but action very good the talons very good all of the court scenes 
very good. The layouts, excellent. Issue five is a masterclass. The twisting page, which again works better in print than it does with digital because the damn thing keeps wanting to move. But the fact rotation that, lock is your friend. Yeah. But the fact that Batman is in this labyrinth and the, as he gets deeper and deeper into it, the page is rotating is so friggin' cool. Now, the court as a concept is great. And someday, someday I am going to sit down and I am going to do a definitive history of Gotham City as put in the comics. I'm going to go and I'm going to find all of the different the dates and the history. And I'm going to try to assemble something between these stories, between the Morrison stuff, between the stuff we're getting in Detective now, plus Destroyer, which established some of the architecture before that, the stories of so- the other stories of Solomon Wayne. I always wish someone would do a book, a generational saga of the Waynes. Because there's a book called The Kents, which is a Western starring the, you know, ancestors of Superman's adoptive family. By It's John Ostrander, Tim Truman, and Tom Mandrake. It's great. And I thought it would be really cool to do a one of that with the Waynes. But we get, I mean, we get bits of that here, but to do that whole story. So also- let me see, let me see if I can get this straight and get this right in my head. Alan Wayne is the great grandfather or great great grandfather. Great grandfather. Great grandfather. Alan begets. Actually, I figured we would go here. So I actually wrote this down because I knew we would. No, he is great, great. Excuse me. Alan is great, great. His son, who's not mentioned here, is Henry. Henry's son is Patrick, now Richard, apparently, if Gotham Year One is to be believed. That's that's what I was I was wondering, where, they, where Richard is coming into this. They change his name. It, previously, Thomas Wayne's father was Patrick. Now it's Richard, if Gotham Year One is canon. But it's, his personality seems to fit pretty well with some versions of Thomas Wayne's asshole dad. So... That's, you know, Thomas is often portrayed as becoming a doctor as rebellion against his father who wanted him to be a man of business. And Thomas wanted to be a man of philanthropy and the people. So that actually does somewhat work in at least a couple versions of Thomas's father, then Thomas and then Bruce. So and Alan's father is Judge Solomon Wayne, who appears in a story that we'll cover someday, a couple of stories, actually. Because he was the Wayne at the time of the Civil War and made the caves under the manor a stop on the Underground Railroad. There are a couple of stories about that. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. But speaking of Waynes, we also have Lincoln March. Mm, the is he or is he not a Wayne? Which I really like that Snyder leaves that so vague. Mm-hmm. 
it would have been so easy to either make it clear that he was nuts and manipulated and gaslit by the court or make it clear that he was this lost Wayne. But he leaves it with all these little hints that maybe it's true, maybe it's not, especially when you factor in the Jarvis Pennyworth backups. And especially because in both pre-crisis continuity and the alternate world of Earth 3, there is a Thomas Wayne Jr. This version is a take on that pre-crisis Thomas Wayne Jr. who suffered a brain injury and was institutionalized and became the boomerang killer and eventually a host for Dead Man. And the Thomas Wayne Jr. of the Evil Earth 3 is Owl Man. So... And it and it's not like it would be beyond the idea of a rich and powerful family to institutionalize a child. I mean, you just got to look at the Kennedys for that. Yep. I was going to say we've, we've got real world evidence of that. This sets up so many dominoes and unfortunately, some of which don't fall. I wish Snyder had spent more time over the rest of his run dealing with Bruce and his new Gotham project, because that doesn't come up a ton or even continuing to hunt down the owls like right you get a sense of reading this i almost had a uh, our flashback to uh, uh quantum of solace like the idea of bond going after this deep and shadowy organization and then that idea just gets dropped for a couple of movies i also i had completely forgotten that the member of the court that bruce puts the screws on is a powers that he was already, Snyder was already seeding the powers at the beginning of his run before Jerry shows up in Super Heavy. He clearly was setting up those Batman Beyond references just to keep readers on their toes. And we get, you know, the first appearance of Harper Rowe here and just a little cameo. Man, I love the Talon's design. They're just such a great visual. Certainly got some strong influences from one of our other stories. Yes. Now, here's another question. How do you feel about that moment where Bruce punches Dick in the face? I am not a big fan of it. For one, I feel just like it could have just been, oh, I'm going to, you know, we'll do an x-ray and I'll, I'll show you that you have a cavity in one of your teeth that was made for the talent thing. While I'm thinking about Dick, this is the night of terrible ally costumes. Whoever wanted to put Nightwing in red. No, don't, don't ever do that again. It's, it's still not as bad as red Robin in uh, one of our other books, but uh, don't like it. Don't like it. But yeah, that just seemed out of character and just a thing that they just would have talked about rather than getting a punch to the face. Don't like it. Snyder is a talky writer. I like that. But if you your mileage may vary on a writer who has a lot of narration, because there's a lot of navel gazy narration in this book. But it does give it an epic feel. 
it feels important. It feels stately, I think, without being too navel gazy. I like it. I just, I know there are people who think Snyder over narrates. Well, I think some people are assholes, man. You know, it's all just a matter <laughs> of opinion. There's that New Year's resolution about, you know, call it as you see it. Um, ah, I, mm, I, I can't, I can't wait until the next time somebody tries to start an argument with me on Twitter. I'm not having any of it. I don't know how we'll cover the, the night of the owls crossover issues. I don't think we'll cover all of them because Bruce isn't in everyone, but we do get reference to a couple of them because there is a line in one of these about there being two targets left on the list, Jeremiah Arkham and Lincoln March. And the Jeremiah Arkham story is a Detective Comics issue of the Night of the Owls crossover. And I, I went back and double checked. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. And I was right. Oh, I love that the, the robot dinosaur has a function. I just a guard that, dog. Yeah, the final security thing is, oh, yeah, I'm going to have this big old dinosaur statue stomp on you. I, I think in one of our other stories, like we've, it probably crosses the line, Batman being able to plan and, and having a contingency for every single possible moment. Uh, but the stuff in the cave is good. You know, the talons attack and Batman is prepared. I will say much like Chip Zdarsky trying to engineer a Batman who can survive re-entry. I don't like the idea of Batman having climate control so good that he can bring the cave to like minus 20. It's not a freezer that I feel like that technology just doesn't exist, but I'm glad you have it for the entire cave. No, I think it would have been if he could lead them into a specific sub cavern or something, then I could absolutely say that he would have a cold storage set up. I mean, they, he has a morgue down there where they eventually stick the talons, but I, I can see where you're coming from on that. We'll also cover the Batman annual that is tangential to this in a New 52 origin villain origins episode with a couple of the other villains who have major changes to their origins in the New 52. Uh, I do like Scott Snyder's freeze. Yeah, we'll do that one. We'll do Two-Face because boy howdy does his origin change. And uh, Penguin because there was a Penguin miniseries with Penguin's updated origin that that will be an episode someday so we took up super heavy in one of our very first shows episode ooh, was it three maybe it was early and i remember just how much i disliked that story aside from the part that's really good it felt plotting i was bored i just it was a slog to get through Court of Owls is none of that. It is exciting. It's interesting. It's It's got these new ideas that don't feel, we'll say, punchline-y slash ghost hunter-y. These don't feel like unnecessary, unwelcome additions to Batman's universe. And this is a really good story. And uh, it was nice to come back to it. Just check. Super Heavy was episode eight, the Batman Loses episode. And we, of course, did Zero Year all the way back in episode number one. Mm. Deer year also felt like a slog. 
Zero Year was long. Zero Year felt like it could have been trimmed or could have been more discrete arcs versus sort of running that whole thing into a year, treating it as it's traded in three parts. And while two and three are very much one piece, part one, the Red Hood thing could have been almost a separate arc. And then you could have taken a little time off and then come back to that later on or something. I don't know. But this flows so well over 11 issues. You read this and you don't realize that you're reading 11 issues because it's exciting and it's smart. And boy, Bruce just, he goes through the ringer in this and comes out the better for it by the very end. In the end, there's the whole Gotham is throughout this. And by the end, Gotham is all of us. Snyder is, in the end, a humanist. He really believes in people, even at their worst, that he sees a little glimmer of hope. But he spends a lot of time looking at people at their worst. And very clearly see in the third story. Yes. That third story, I believe, has a bit of overriding it's it's too clever it's too it's maybe too navel gazy but this one just hits all the right notes right uh you didn't get to the end and get to the reveal about lincoln march and feel like oh gee that came out of nowhere or i saw this coming or there was no sense of just sort of exasperation where it's maybe that third story it's it's a little bit of that yeah but we'll get to the third story we can get to the third story but I think as we're starting to talk about the other stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that means it's time to put the Court of Owls on the big board. Okay, we currently are at 213 stories on the big board. Number one is Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Number 50 is Batman's Mystery Casebook, the Great all ages, Batman meets Encyclopedia Brown. And coming in at a sexy 69, Detective Comics number 559, it takes two wings to fly. Down at number 100 is Going Sane, the Legends of the Dark Knight arc, where Joker thinks he killed Batman and his mind snaps into sanity. Uh, down at 150 is Shadow Box from Batman 467 to 469. The Tim Drake returns to Gotham and has to deal with the ghost dragons from his miniseries. And guess what? All the way down at the bottom, it's White Knight. Still sucks. We're going way up top. Yeah. I will say initially, and I think without much of an argument, top 30. And I'm and I'm not saying we can't go any higher, but this is definitely better than lost episode in terms of importance yes yes absolutely i'm seriously thinking top 15 yeah uh so we look at we look at 15 through 20 i mean it's good stuff i think the most important thing in there probably is nightfall part one and even that's at 18 yeah nightfall part one is important it's great but it's not 
as powerful as this. And we get some similar beats with Bruce being broken down. But this spends a lot of time talking about the nature of Batman and gives us some really good thoughts on the nature of Batman. So what's the ceiling then? What's what? How high can this go? Do we see it making top 10? That's a good question. As much as I'm loath to push the Joker's five-way revenge out of the top 10, as it is a personal favorite, and historically is in many ways really important because it reestablishes the Joker as the character that he needs to be. It's a punchy little one-off that, while historically significant and a fun story, it's not saying a lot. It's saying that the Joker's a homicidal maniac and that Batman has to beat him. So I'll give you my personal ceiling. Okay. I would say this can't go higher than seven Batman annual number two. Cause that made me cry. Uh, this, this cannot go higher than a book that made me cry. No, I'm thinking nine. Well, I do not love Dark Knight Returns as much as many people do, hence why it is at number eight and not at number one or two. Dark Knight Returns is so historically significant. We would not have something like Court of Owls if we did not have Dark Knight Returns. Mm, Absolutely. But, you know, I think 30 years from now, Court of Owls could very much be right there with Dark Knight Returns. Especially because... Uh, sorry, uh, no. this is much more of an eternal Batman story, right? Dark Knight Returns is very much a story of the Reagan era and the 1980s. It is very dated. There is nothing here that dates this. It's the same way, the reason why I think Year One is a better story. Because Year One, you update the cars and some of the very basic technology And year one can happen now. Dark Knight, the way the story is told, a lot of the tropes are, as you said, very much of the Reagan era, very much of the 80s. I still think, I think this is nine. I think this goes It's been a long time since we filled with the top 10. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the last time was episode 37. So 34. Five episodes ago. Okay, so the Court of Owls is our new number nine. Our second story of the night is The Gates of Gotham. This is Batman, The Gates of Gotham, numbers one to five, with a story by Scott Snyder and Kyle Higgins, a script by Higgins and Ryan Parrott, pencils by Trevor McCarthy, Graham Nolan, Dustin Nguyen, and Derek Donovan, and inks by McCarthy, Nguyen, and Donovan. Colors by Guy Major, letters by Jared K. Fletcher, and edited by Mike March, Janelle Aslan, and Katie Cooper. Cover dates are July to October of 2011. The great landmarks of Gotham City are being destroyed. Secrets from the history of the city's founding families are tied into the new villain called the Architect. And Dick Grayson, as Batman, must learn these secrets and save the city. So if you weren't keeping score... This miniseries ends the month before Court of Owls starts. This <laughs> ran Look at that. right up until the end of the pre 
Flashpoint pre-New 52 DC Universe. And you can see, reading them back to back, that there are aspects of Court of Owls that Snyder already had planned and that Gates of Gotham was setting up that he kept when the reboot happened. The Bat books were the second least affected by the New 52 reboot. The most unaffected were the Green Lantern titles because at the time, DC's sort of chief writer, Jeff Johns, was writing those and he didn't want to give up the story he'd been building for the past decade. So basically nothing changed in the Green Lantern books at all. The, like the sliding time scale there barely affected anything which we didn't even talk about the weird sliding time scale stuff that you get with the Robins in Court of Owls that I just, at this point, ignore because it's dumb. Makes Matt's head hurt. Yeah, it does. Just as I said in that, this story is a plot by Snyder with other writers doing the script. I specifically wanted to do this, A, because of how it works in conversation with Court of Owls, but also because that's a lot of what Snyder does. Snyder is a writing teacher, and he's brought in a lot of writers that were his students, but also writers that he knows. Higgins is one of the two biggest, the other being Tinian. They started in comics really co-writing with Snyder. So I really wanted to do one of the stories where Snyder is working with another writer since that's such a big part of his career. Now, you you had kind of some inside dirt on this uh, because uh, Higgins was a guest on on the WMQ and a mothership. So was this a situation? And I'm, I'm just kind of glancing over his uh, his letter here. Was this kind of a situation where Scott had this idea sort of fully formed in his head? But it was, hey, I'm doing this here bat book. I don't really have a lot of time to write this, but I think it's a cool idea. You guys should be able to, you know, write this script up. No, no trouble. The thing that he mostly said was people often are like, you wrote that thing with Scott Steiner. like, no, no, I wrote the books. This was Sky. That seems to be kind of the way that was Snyder's plot. But Snyder gave him the plot and he ran with it. And a lot of people are like, oh, you wrote this with Scott Snyder? Like, no, no, no. Ryan Parrott wrote an issue or two with me, but I wrote this book. We've had Snyder a couple times on the show, too. We need to get Tiny in to finish the trifecta. But uh, we've we have we've had Snyder around the time of his Noctera Kickstarter and around the time of the launch of the Comixology exclusives. And he's talked about, you know, the Court of Owls and how amazing and shocking it is that this little idea he came up with in the Gotham Knights video game in the Gotham TV show the Batman versus Robin animated movie this is this thing that has taken on a life of its own what hasn't taken on a life of its own is the architect not no. for a, a bad reason but he's just he's not become a major force in Batman stories you know who actually, as I think about it, would possibly be the fifth? And despite him really being introduced in the stories leading up to the new 52, James Gordon Jr. Ah, he's he spent a lot of time dead, though. Yes. Yes, he has. And a lot of time in Batgirl. But he's, you know... Praising. 
but in uh you know black mirror and you get one panel of him in court of owls and then him in man who laughs and uh, batman and in the the tiny the hints of him in the tiny and joker tying into the court yeah i, I he was a good character in um uh, man who laughs batman who laughs right yes so this story is a lot of the present and then we spend a lot of time in the past this establishes all the alan wayne stuff that we see playing out in court of owls alan's later years in court of owls we see the earlier years of him here we also spend a lot of time establishing the ancestors of so many of the other first families of Gotham in the surrounding area. Because while we had Waynes, we've rarely seen Cobblepots and Elliots and Canes of these earlier generations. So it was a cool thing for Snyder and Higgins to establish where these other founding families of Gotham fit in. And just like you said, it would be interesting to see a story about the Waynes. What, what about a story about the Cobblepots, right? To to document their generational fall. You wonder when they really hit rock bottom. Mm, I'm going to say the Depression because that's a good story. Yeah, because the Penguin himself, you know, Oswald was raised fairly modestly, at least in certain versions. I can't remember where the New 52 put it, but usually... He's not, you know, raised wealthy. So I'd have to imagine, yeah, the Depression would be a good thing. Cause, and here they establish that the Cobblepots are steel. So trust busting and things could have really affected the Cobblepots. Ooh, that'd be interesting, too. Meanwhile, the Elliots are newspapers, so they get to do whatever they want. And it's cool that the Gotham Herald is the Elliot's paper. It's not the Gazette, which is the one that we most often see. I picture the Herald as the New York Post. Oh, yeah. The Gazette is definitely the, um, like, the 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 yellow newspaper of, of the day. Uh, the I Gazette or the Herald? The, whichever one the Elliot's are the behind. The, the Herald, Herald. There is we the Elliot's. The Gazette is the New York Times. That's the one Vicki Vale works for. Yeah. That's the, the paper of record. But the the Herald is it's it's the post. Yeah, if we're if we're definitely tracking these families as uh, magnets, as influencers, as mover and shakers, it's the Elliots are the Pulitzers of the day uh, who are bastards who just somehow managed to get their name on prestigious awards. But uh, what I was going to say is that this book, uh, in comparison to to the next one we'll talk about here uh, i'm tempted to say snyder here but it's i suppose the plot is is snyder so we can say the plot this is white knight part two which is god help us if we have to do that dan if you listen to this you can't pick white knight two i'm just saying you can't White Knight 2 is so obsessed with the history of Gotham. Like, oh my God, and the Waynes, and oh no, Bruce isn't really a Wayne. He's so devastated, and it's so shameful. And 
much like Dick in the last story, you know, Dick's point that we never really got to, but Dick basically is just like, look, who gives a fuck, right? I'm my own man. I'm, I'm, you know, I am not corrupt. I am above this. You, you are my father, not the talents. I don't care what the DNA is. Now, White Knight 2 is, is a slog. Like, just don't care about any of the things that it cares about. And the writing is of such inferior quality. Like, it's truly, truly a book that could only rival White Knight 1 in terms of how bad it is. But none of that feeling is here. This is interesting. I mean, I don't think I love this, but for the reasons I don't love it are primarily based in the art. But this is this is an interesting take on how Gotham's past is related to its present. It's not trying to rewrite anything. It's trying no. to flesh things out versus White Knight that's all about rewriting the past up to and including the fact that friggin' Sean Gordon Murphy doesn't know that Dick Grayson is the first Robin. Mm. Oh, Christ. The, the, the less I think about that, the better. How um, did an editor not say that? How did an editor not say, oh, by the way, Dick Grayson is the first Robin. And didn't he just like come out and admit that in like a in like a uh, an afterward? Yeah, yeah. He's just like I just screwed that up. I thought Jason Todd was the first Robin. How do you say you're a Batman fan and not realize that Dick Grayson was the first Robin? I, I rarely say that. You know, how can you be a fan of X if you don't X? Because people can be fans of things in many many different ways, but. It's like thinking James Bond is American. Hey, Tom Selleck had gotten that part. He would have been. Mm. But this is, in many ways, the last Batman story before the big reboot. This and Morrison's first volume of Batman, Inc. are the two stories and Black Mirror. They're the three stories that ran right up until the end. There's also something going on in Batman, but nobody cares. Um, <laughs> that the Batman main title was not in its high point right before the new 52. So the versions of these characters that we're getting here are all in a very different place mentally, emotionally, and in their relationships than we've seen in a long time since that you've got Tim Drake at his most confident, his most a part of the bat family. You have Dick in that point where he's not 100% confident as Batman because he was getting there. And then Bruce came back from the dead. And so now it's like, Oh, well, where do I stand? And they didn't have time to do a lot with that because Eight or so months later, the new 52 happened. You have Damien at his worst. This is Damien at his most little shit. Uh, Misogynistic little shit. And you have Cass at a point where she had been sort of shuffled off to the side because Stephanie had become Batgirl and she had become the Batman Inc. rep for Hong Kong. And this is her coming back to Gotham. We hadn't seen her in a main Bat title, aside from a little bit in Ink, 
for quite some time. So this was a nice feeling, a nice reunion of the Bat family. And this is Dick and Tim at their closest. This is still spinning out of years of the two of them as brothers. I do want to underline the the point that this Red Robin costume should be burned. I mean, this is the same Red Robin costume from, from Kingdom Come. This is that costume. I just hate it so much more here. I wonder if that has to do with the, the art, the specific art, because I I like this more than I like the uh, New 52 version of the Red Robin costume. It, he looks like a bad cross of Batman and Zorro. Like, I just, it's just, ugh. and and a little bit Dread Pirate Roberts in there. I'm going to send you an image over the chat. Okay. Of a different artist's take on the same, of Tim in the same costume. Okay. And I want to see if you feel the same way about it that way. I mean, this could be a different strokes for different folks kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's off-putting. Okay. I mean, again, I'm... I'll still take it over. Let me find the uh, the new 52 version of the costume, which is no wait, that might not be the actual version. That might be a you know that's close enough. I mean, it might. I don't. I mean, I I have no particular qualms with this particular costume. It's it's the it's the covering the head that does it for me. Like it just doesn't it doesn't look right. Yeah, give me that. Give me that new fifty-two Red Robin. I see the new fifty-two Red Robin for me is just too damn busy with all the pouches and things. It feels like it's nineteen nineteen ninety cold, and it wants its pouches back. The the art here, I I do not like. It feels too storybook for me. And one page in particular, and I don't know if this is the artist who included this detail or if this was in the script specifically in issue one, after we've had this bridge uh, that gets blown, I don't know whether the writer says Batman exits in the bat sub as bodies are in the water or Batman is imagining bodies in the water but it is a really bad call. We have these close-up shots of these people who have drowned. And again, this art is, I get it. It looks, it looks more like Disney. It looks more like a, like a parody of something you might find. Like uh, it reminds me a lot of family guy doing part of an episode in a Disney style. Like, so visually this just, this didn't do it for me. And this one page in particular is really off. I think, I think that that's Dick thinking about the people that he couldn't save. The thing that bothered me in the, so the first or second issue, when we see him a couple of times, both of those issues is this is a split the difference penguin. And I'm never a fan of a split. the difference. Yeah. Penguin. Yeah. He, it, he's either businessman or monster. You can't, do the penguin that is somewhere in between it doesn't it, it works even less for me than monster penguin 
Yeah. Once you do uh, a guy in a nice suit and with pointed teeth, mm -mm, you've messed up. But he's got normal hands. And that's where it's like it split the difference. Like he's in the nice suit and he's got five fingers. He doesn't have the flippers, but he has the, 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 the fangs. The architect here, this this villain who's the descendant. We, wow. We've talked a lot about, you know, the, the things being destroyed. But we haven't talked about the villain who's the descendant of the Gate family who were the architects working with the Waynes. And here he's now wearing this seriously steampunk suit. Like Tim says steampunk and... It's like, it is really, really steampunk. I mean, he's not a bad villain, but he's not a terribly interesting villain either. He's not one of these guys that I expect, I think he's come back once for Batman Eternal, but we he really hasn't popped up again because how many other villains do we need who have a vendetta against the Waynes? Yeah. You've got Hush, you've got Black Mask, you've got in some ways Penguin written in a certain way you know wants to prove he's better than the waynes the, the court of owls even before because they didn't i we didn't even say that they didn't know they they weren't going after bruce wayne because he was batman they're going after bruce wayne because he was a wayne and I, this is never spelled out in the text but the court was after bruce because he was going to remake the city yeah is that the, yeah they uh, I, and that's the reason they went after alan they seem to always go after people who want to remake their city. But you mentioned it before, but the thing that left the worst taste, the how awful Damien is with Cassandra. Now, yeah. Damien should absolutely have an issue with Cassandra because she is technically his sort of opposite number. She is an adopted Wayne who briefly tried to take over the League of Assassins and as the daughter of Lady Shiva has a certain claim on the League. So they are sort of opposite sides of the same coin, except Damien had to sort of be forced into not killing while Cass killed one person and was so broken and disgusted with herself that she swore to never take a life again. There's a lot of material there, but here Damien's just awful. And unfortunately, that was how Damien was generally being written at this point by most writers who weren't Morrison. Damien was sort of there to just be awful. And I think it was often portrayed that way, especially by writers who liked Tim Drake, because of Damien's sort of terrible early interactions with Tim, a lot of Tim Drake fans hated Damien. He only tried to kill him that one time. Just the once. The other reason Damien might have a thing against Cass is because Cass in all likelihood could kick his ass easily. And I would have liked to see Cassandra kick Damien's ass because he had it coming. But yeah, getting back to the architect, the origin story is is a bit played out. It reminds me of what of a recent episode, a recent in the last, I don't know, five years, episode of American Dad, where this guy has a vendetta against a railroad company because uh, they ran a railroad through his grandpappy's territory 
uh, and the railroad was was between his grandpappy's house and his outhouse. And one day the train came through and his grandpappy couldn't make it to the outhouse in time. So he shit himself. And so now you got a guy like 50 years later determined to I'm going to square, make it even gets the railroad. And you've got a guy who's just reading like his crazy grandpappy's diary and decides uh, I'm going to get even with these families, with these these Waynes and these Elliots. And, uh, and, you know, he puts on the suit that, conveniently enough, drives him crazy as well. There is a level of contrivance there. I liked the narrative hook of the diary as the narration of the past stuff. I thought that was well written. Absolutely. And the the twist at the end that the guy writing the diary was not in his right mind. You know, that was that was a nice bit at the end. But I also, again, as we often see with Snyder stories we saw above, there is the ambiguity. There is the question of were was Cameron Kane responsible for the death of the one gate brother? He says he wasn't, but as we see, he's not exactly the most reliable narrator either when it comes to no. that. Because what is he going to say? Yeah, I killed him. I mean, we know the Canes are not the greatest. We saw Philip, Bruce's uncle in Zero Year, in Morrison's Return of Bruce Wayne, when Bruce is bouncing through time and he winds up running into his Kane grandparents. They're awful. At what point do the Canes intermarry with the Waynes? Only with Thomas and Martha. The Canes and the Waynes get the the Canes were not happy that Martha married a Wayne. Oh, little Romeo and Juliet action. Yeah, but and that's why Bruce. They use that to explain why Bruce wasn't given over to any of his Kane uncles to live with, because they had sort of not disowned in a legal sense, but they weren't willing to speak with Martha. So the Waynes made Alfred his guardian because they didn't trust Philip or Jacob was in the army traveling. That's Kate's father. And there's a third Kane brother, I believe. I thought there were three Canes. Jacob, Philip, Nathan, right? Nathan Kane, who's the one who marries Kathy Kane, the first Batwoman, as his much younger wife, and theoretically Uncle Philip, who we saw die in Zero Year, is the father of Betty, who's Flamebird. Unless there's one another Kane brother who we never met, but. Yeah, the, the Canes, there were many more Canes than there were Waynes. And you can see that Higgins and Snyder were setting up plot lines about Cassandra coming back to Gotham and Bruce coming back to Gotham to talk to Dick that don't play out because the new 52 happened and there went all of the stuff that had been laid down as future storylines. Wah, wah. At least, I mean, that was the thing. Snyder had done Black Mirror over in Detective as a 12-issue story that ended. Its 12-issue came out, 
12th issue came out the month before the new 52 as it was scheduled to it it had a satisfying ending so many books did not batman did not batman inc they wound up having to released the last two issues as an oversized one shot in the new 52 era, despite it clearly being written in pre new 52 continuity. So they could wrap up the series in a second volume that suddenly jumped into new 52 continuity. It's such a mess. I mean, when, while this has a nice little wrap of its story, it's, you know, I don't know how much more I have here. Uh, I was going to go back and just say, looking this over, the architect is particularly lame, I think, because he's it's it's not that it was a family vendetta. Well, I guess it was because his name was like this, the alias. I remember that now. But he was just a guy working for the city planning commission. Uh, I I guess this was part of a long con. Like he was going to go to, he was going to go to Gotham state and major in, you know, urban planning and then get this job and then just perfectly buy it his time and then strike. It seems that way. Yeah. And the, the, the revelation that he is the descendant, you kind of infer it. And eventually they say it, but they say it as if it's a fait accompli, as if you, you know, already knew it. And they hadn't said it anywhere before. It's stated in a very matter of fact way, as if they had already said it at some point or another. And the book is much more concerned about fleshing out the details of his grandfathers and their affairs than his. And I mean, they subtly give you some of this because you see Nicholas Gate you know, have a family. I had thought there might've been something happening because Nicholas and Bradley, the gate brothers are step brothers. And Nicholas eventually, you know, takes the gate name, but I didn't quite know why they needed to do that, except so that Thomas could talk to Nicholas early in the story. and He didn't have the gate name. So it would be a twist later on. Ah, Gates of Gotham. Ah. Right. It's like, okay, so you needed to introduce him earlier and you needed to say his name, but if you'd said Gate, it would have given away the game. So you use the other name and then he takes the Gate name later. Game Uh, ain't that important. Oh, and and just one other thing. Speaking of characters who act like shits, this is like, oh, hush, you're such a dick. I forget that there's this whole period where hush is just as like cackling jackass. He's not even that evil anymore. He's more just like, shut him up. Just hanging out in all of his bloody, disgusting bandages. Well, they have to keep him bandaged because this is at the point where he's had the surgery to look like Bruce Wayne. So you can't have him just walking around looking like Bruce Wayne. <sighs> we'll get to Heart of Hush eventually. Uh, okay i think that's a that that, i'm out of stuff yeah that's enough all right that means it's time for batman gates of gotham on the big board obviously not as high as court of owls but but solid 
Yeah, in in the territory of perfectly acceptable and maybe ultimately forgettable. So we're talking somewhere around the middle of the list? Yeah. Um, Maybe a little below the middle, but not much below the middle. I mean, it's it's a competently told story that doesn't overstay its welcome. And we can't say that for everything on the list. Yeah, and I'm thinking somewhere in the 100s, 1-teens, somewhere around there, like smack dab right in the middle. Yeah. I don't think I'd put it above first Batman at no. 107. No, I, I was looking right there. I was like, okay, Sword of Azrael is probably better. First Batman is probably better. You know, speaking of stories that add stuff into the back backstory of Batman, at 109, you've got Fearless, that Brubaker story where suddenly Bruce has this employee who's his close friend. I feel like this is a much more organic retcon than that. I, I think this might go right above that. Re- refresh me on Superman 76. The, the cruise ship. Uh, this uh, is how Batman and Superman first met. That's probably like the seventh, eighth, tenth time I've asked you that question. I got to do a better job on my list. Yes, that that's Superman and Batman's first meeting. So I think this one goes below that, above Fearless at the new 109. Sounds good. Our final story of the night is My Own Worst Enemy. This is All-Star Batman numbers one to five. Writer Scott Snyder with pencils by John Romita Jr., inks by Danny Meeky, Tom Palmer, Sandra Hope, and Richard Friend, colors by Dean White, letters by Steve Wands, and edited by Mark Doyle, Rebecca Taylor, and Dave Wilgosh. The cover dates are October of 2016 to February of 2017. It's a race against time. There is a cure waiting for Two-Face that will finally rid Harvey Dent of his evil altar, and Batman has to get him to it. But Two-Face is putting a bounty on Batman, and every supervillain and everyday person is out to collect. Two notes as we start. One, the Cursed Wheel Duke Thomas backups will be covered as a separate story. So we're just talking about the main story here. Second, this story, I feel, is very, very much informed by when it came out this story part three i believe of this story was released the day after the 2016 election oh boy okay part three or part four because again we're looking at cover dates not publication dates but while snyder didn't necessarily predict the results of the election we are looking at a story that is about people giving in to fear and giving into their lowest possible instinct. And that speaks a lot to what was going on in the zeitgeist at that point. Absolutely. This one is, I mean, I talked at the beginning about Snyder writing his fears. And like I just said, this one is very much about Snyder looking out his window and seeing how awful people were being and being afraid that our better angels do not win in the end. Because Two-Face puts out this bounty 
that is like, okay, I have all of this bat blackmail information. Batman is bringing me somewhere. If I make it there, I'm releasing all of that information. But if anyone is able to free me, I will give you a shit ton of money that I'm going to steal from Gotham's three biggest crime bosses. And we basically see it's a mad, 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 mad world, except as opposed to looking for a treasure, they're looking for Batman. Yeah, it is a relentless, nonstop action, plot, dense, action, heavy story. Loud. I would say in in ways that Court of Owls certainly was not. And it does feel overwritten. Yes, especially as we get toward the end and you get, oh, plots within plots. And who's the real bad guy here? Is it Two-Face or is it Harvey? Ooh, There's so many cross, double cross, triple cross, quadruple cross in this that it can be a bit much also there's a lot of time jumping early in the story that can be a little bit confusing and all of the time jumps by the way are twos two hours two <laughs> months 22 minutes uh why did i not notice that it took me a couple of issues to realize it but yeah they're all in increments of twos in some way or another and, and you've got this i guess whatever the the opposite of a ticking clock not opposite but as opposed to a time clock you've got the whole thing traced by its 498 miles to where bruce needs to take two-face where this cure that harvey has come up with is waiting and we see it, it's x miles traveled x miles to go throughout which is cool but when you're also throwing in the time jumps it can be a bit much yeah it, but it it never got to the the point where i was like this is unreadable uh like gates of gotham is sean gordon murphy done well whatever you would consider that to be this is tom king done well because speaking of king if there's one other writer who his themes are there it's king but king has the same two themes and he just keeps going back to the well at least snyder's fears evolve over time <laughs> <laughs> he's gotten older and he's had kids and he's worried about the world around him and how his kids and all that kind of stuff. Uh, King is just like, uh, I love form. I love structure. Let me play with those things. Now this more than anything else, more than others, I think there's going to be some spoilers of some of the twists here. Spe there's one twist here that I keep going back to the alfred twists yes don't care for him yeah the thought that alfred early on might have tried to hire a hitman to take out the joker i, I that one i can almost see alfred trying to do that to defend bruce but 
for Alfred to use the slush fund that they use for the cave and not have thought to move that money somewhere else seems very sloppy. And then to be so aggressive in his need to protect Bruce that, oh, I'm going to bring down the bat plane so that Jim Gordon won't find out that Batman is uh, or that Bruce Wayne is Batman. At the end of the story, Jim Gordon is a stronger ally than Alfred. And that is that is not a place that you want to be in. Yeah. And it's like, okay. Alfred brings down the bat plane. I mean, I'm sure he had the confidence that Bruce would live through it, but accidents happen and you're shooting down a plane. What would Alfred have done if Bruce had died or if Bruce had gotten hideously injured in bringing down the bat plane? At some level, you got to trust Bruce, which is exactly what we saw with, with Gordon. You know, he just, pulls Alfred aside when when he's out of earshot from the other cops and he says look you got to fucking make this right you got to get on that phone call and you, you know you you got to call the guy and figure out how to undo this i cannot march down there into that cave cuz we both know what's down there which turns out to be just a little man cave yeah <laughs> which i mean yes i agree that you've got some over contingent too clever by half Batman, but I like that it's a man cave. I like that. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and then, and then the line of dialogue is just perfect. It's just perfect. Uh, what? Like this guy has some kind of secret staircase where if you're not Batman, you go in a different staircase. Like it's perfect. Yes. I feel like Alfred would have come clean that Alfred, when this all started to come, when Harvey or two face started to blackmail him, as ashamed as he might have been, he would have come clean as opposed to going through all of this to not have to tell Bruce the truth. Absolutely. And where it gets really exhausting is, is like I said earlier, at the end where it is just, oh, so Harvey double crossed him a third time. <laughs> this whole cure that they've been on the hunt for oh it might have been sabotaged and oh this dates back to when they were kids and it turns out bruce and harvey were friends but they weren't really friends because maybe they didn't understand that uh that was bruce wayne and that was harvey dent and they were anonymous at this home for wayward youth and uh it was a lot that is the split the difference penguin of two-face it's trying to do the, you know, oh, they're old friends from Batman the Animated Series while also maintaining that they didn't know each other that well when they when Bruce first comes back to Gotham. It's a let's have our cake and eat it too kind of deal. I do like the idea that Harvey has his dad tied up in a basement, though. That was really fucked up. Oh, yeah. That that was some dark, dark shit. I, I have to say, one of the few things that, you know, the, the reboot of the New 52 and Rebirth and such, this kind of allowed us to redeem ha uh, Harold. That Harold ah, was it was good to see him again. Yeah, he's just alive and he's living on a farm and sending tech down to Batman and we don't have all the 
he was awful in Hush. Like, oh, good. I, I'm glad that Harold gets a happy ending here as opposed to being shot by Hush. And he knows a little bit of medicine now. Yeah. Now, we also see the Black and Whites, who we saw last continuity in Super Heavy. The mobsters running Gotham at this point being Penguin, Black Mask, and the Great White Shark. And here they hire the Beast, the K- the former KGB Beast. That guy is the most inconsistently written villain, I think, in all of Batman's rogues gallery. Oh, I can imagine. When he first appeared in 10 Nights of the Beast in the 80s, he was like the world's deadliest assassin. He was a real major threat. He gave Bruce a run for his money. And then the next time you see him, he's hired muscle and Tim can take him out. And then for a long time, he's just sort of generic, lame, former Soviet muscle. And then he dies. And then the new 52 happens and he's alive again. And here he's back and he's terrifying again. Back up to that level of that first appearance. And then the next time we see him, he's, you know, sniping Dick Grayson. And then Bruce is beating him to death, nearly to death, and leaving him to freeze out in the cold. And now again, you see him in Task Force Z in places. He's not that much of a threat. This guy, nobody can decide if he is Deathstroke level assassin or a grunt. And it just bugs me that he's... and I guess you used him instead of someone like Deathstroke. I think at that point, Deathstroke had his own series. But it felt like you would have wanted to use Deathstroke in that place if Deathstroke was in full villain mode. Yeah, if you want to hire an assassin, that seems like the more natural character to go with. But I I did like sort of the setup here. It's like we want to hire a guy who's almost so expensive as to be unhirable. And then he says, okay, you hire me. I'm going to do this my way. This is my one chance to do a job that to do it the way that I want to do it, which is to cause utmost chaos and loss of life. And as he, as he calls mess, and I want you to deal with whatever comes afterward. So I'm an artist. Let me work. Let me paint. Let me create. Stay out of my way. And I love that the black and whites really don't have the money to pay him. It's like we'll deal with Penguin's like we'll deal with that when we when we have to. For now, let's just let him do his thing. What we haven't spent a lot of time talking about is the other side effects of Two Face's bounty. That on multiple occasions we see everyday people turning on Batman. Because they either don't want their secrets getting out or they want the money. And that's the theme in this story. And it's something that Two-Face and Batman say to each other sort of over and over again. Is that Two-Face believes that everyone is their worst instincts. And Bruce believes that everyone has better angels and will listen to them. And they go round and round about it over and over again, issue after issue. Having the same argument phrased differently. And in the end, the theme bears out because what Bruce winds up 
shooting Harvey up with isn't the cure, but this thing that sort of locks in the dyad. And instead of them just sort of sliding back and forth, it's whichever one of them is stronger at any particular moment is the one who is in charge. And while a lot of this doesn't carry through, I feel like that's something that we're seeing in the Rom V detective right now, that the reason Harvey was in charge was that Harvey had forced Two-Face down even before that demon thing got into him. And then you had sort of layers upon layers of who's in control. You're right in that that argument does get repetitive after a while. But at least it wasn't several scenes of, say, in the first issue where you have the people in the diner who Batman has just saved, then subsequently, you know, shooting him in the back. Right. Literally shooting him in the back. Yeah. They avoid that. It is a good argument to have because a badly written Batman or a very surface written Batman is a Batman who believes that everyone is superstitious and cowardly. But a deeper Batman is someone who believes that people are good. That that's why he does what he does is to protect the innocent and the virtuous. And if Batman didn't believe that at his core, he wouldn't need to do what he does. Exactly. So I think Snyder gets that particular aspect of Batman very well. And having Harvey be the one who stands against him in that, or Two-Face, because very specifically we're dealing with the split personality here. You know, I have to be clear about whether it's Harvey or Two-Face. And both of them seem to believe that people are their lesser instincts. It makes more sense than having it be Joker or one of the others because Two-Face is Harvey's basest instincts given voice and form on their own. What did you think of the art here? I know uh, Romita Jr. is uh, is a bit of an acquired taste. I think he yeah, he does tend to split people. I thought the visuals here were fine. I I enjoyed the art here more than in uh, in Gates of Gotham. But yeah, I know it can be uh, it can be a divisive topic. I'm generally pro Romita. I think here it's at points extra super Romita extra super blocky yeah as the faces get more and more square yeah yeah and you get a couple of redesigns that are kind of weird like i don't know why duke has a full face as opposed to the the half cowl that he usually has and we haven't talked but duke thomas who's i don't think is going by signal just yet but duke is the main sidekick here which I guess makes a certain degree of sense because he'd be the one who had a, the least exposure to two face. So it allows for info dumps that you wouldn't have needed with Dick or Tim and Damien wouldn't care, but why have you not killed him father? Right. But it also gives you the parallel with Duke and his parents who he's trying to cure of the Joker venom that they were given during Endgame. 
So he can sympathize more with Bruce wanting to save his friend. The one design that really jumped out at me is, huh? Was there's a whole scene with Batman fighting some big lumbering villains on top of a train and you get Croc and you get Amygdala and you also, time for Shark Watch. Shark Watch? Because you get King Shark. Counts. Yes, it, it absolutely does. He is half shark, half man. He counts for Shark Watch. But all of them are like super Ramita. They are so big and so blocky looking. It's almost distracting. But I do like having those three together. Yeah. Speaking of uh, trios, the black and whites are great. <laughs> at one point, the three of them are at a ga- stopping to get gas on their way out to meet the beast who has Batman. And some guys start making fun of the penguin like, hey, we could use you as a decoy for our ducks. And then he just lights them on fire with his umbrella and walks away. It's got a, it could be worse, you get a blood gushing from your nose sort of moment to it. Two little artistic uh, flourishes I enjoyed in that scene. One, the hunters, the truck, their license plate, DBL00, double aught. I like that. Uh, The convenience store, the come and go. You stuck that one in, didn't you? Yeah. And I like the little epilogue at the end where Bruce fucks with them wearing the beast's mask. Okay, Bruce can have a little bit of a sense of humor. He can't. He doesn't have anything to, you know, on these guys to get them locked up at this point. But he'll still fuck with them, and that's where the the twos become so obvious because that story, the epilogue, two months, two weeks, and two days later, it's very clear. When he gets to the end, it's like you haven't gotten this yet. Yeah, here we go. Two, two, and two. Wah! The passage! Wah! This story, along with the stuff we're getting in Detective right now, has sold me more than ever about the really distinct break in Harvey's psyche, the two personalities, mm-hmm. versus a broken personality who can't settle on anything because he himself, he's at war with himself versus here where it's two minds at war with each other. And I like the lettering choice here where it's just the bubble shapes that are different when it's Two-Face and Harvey. It's it's not outrageous to, to continue my classic complaint with lettering. It's just, just a, it's a little, it's just enough to let you know that something else is going on here. It's like, no, it's normal lettering. It's just how the bubbles look. That was an easy visual indicator for which one is which. What do you think about where this book lands on the ultimate question of maybe Harvey himself is also a bad guy? I think that even if you look at Long Halloween, before even Two-Face manifested fully, Harvey always had a bit of darkness about him. And I think that years of having to split his time with Two-Face and be there with Two-Face might have broken him a little or a lot. 
I don't think Harvey was always a bad guy, but I think he might have been weak. And I think here, I mean, Two-Face calls him weak over and over again. But I think this might be where we do see a weakness in Harvey's personality that just comes out because he would rather compromise his morals entirely to just be done with it. I don't know if that makes him evil, but it certainly makes him weak. Do you prefer Harvey to remain the white knight all along? I, yeah, I don't know. And right. And this, this ties in so much to like, what's his origin, you know, was his father abusive or was he just maybe ego driven a little bit? And then, you know, he gets the acid in his face. We really need to read Batman Annual 14. We really need to read Eye of the Beholder, which is the story that cre- creates the abusive father origin for Two-Face. Uh, and then we've got that uh, one bad day that we just read that was like, oh, you know, he's this business magnet. And then, you know, this story says that he was a politician. And I, a little bit of choose your own origin, right? And I'm pretty sure in the original, he's just some guy. I don't think he's, I think he's a nobody. That came out like shortly after I started reading comics. Like that is an old, it's like a 1990 annual. And I think I was way too young to get all the nuance of that story. But I mean, I just remember that he's in a nursing home in that story. Like he's not in a good way. And that's where he is in Long Halloween. Like Harvey says, you know, he went to see his father in the home. So he's not just sort of out there like he is in One Bad Day. Still might work with this version because he gets him out of the home and locks him in a basement. Uh, it was just like, what, two panels? Yeah, so it, creepy. Yeah, it's just one page, a few panels, and it's just, you never see him, you just hear the voice. And it's like, ooh. And again, the question is, was that Two-Face or was that Harvey? Two-Face certainly would argue that it's Harvey. Har- Harvey's Harvey's the one keeping him alive just to torture him. Yeah. There is one line here when Duke is talking to Alfred about Two-Face. There's a line about things that might have changed him was the gunshot. And that's a reference to the Batman and Robin story from that book, Batman and Robin, which has the new origin of Two-Face as well as a Two-Face story taking place in the present and eventually is dealt with in another story where Two-Face winds up getting shot in the head and it's a thing. But we'll get to that story at some point. We'll get to them all, Matt. Indeed we will. you have anything else? I think it's time to put this one to bed. So that means we're going to put All-Star Batman 1 through 5, my own worst enemy, on the big board. I'm thinking in the middle. I'm thinking between the two, between Court of Owls and Gates of Gotham. Yeah. Um, if this one has more to say about Batman than Gates of Gotham does, like we didn't, I mean, we didn't talk a lot about, you know, the Dick's inner turmoil in that story about whether he's a good enough Batman. That's sort of the main character arc there. But the fact that we could go through the whole discussion and not really spend a lot of time on that, while a lot of here we were talking about theme and character makes this story that wins me over a little more yeah and that's another one of the the gates of gotham is another one of those stories where it's really hard to tell that it's dick bad 
because it's just written uh, a lot like Batman. So, yeah. Okay, so here's a first bid. Okay. Speaking of Two-Face stories, where do you feel like this stands against uh, number 80, Half an Evil? I mean, I think it's it's got more substance. It does. That story is just, it's fun. Yeah. Smash and grab, Harvey. Smash and grab. Smash and grab. I'd put this above Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 76. Yes. What about, now here's, so number 74 is A Lonely Place of Living. That's the tiny and Tim Drake story where Tim Drake is sort of stuck with the evil alternate future version of himself. So we almost have Tim having to talk to an evil version of himself doing a one-man two-face or a two-man two-face. I don't know if I would put this above that. I would agree. I think there is a lot to be said with that story about Tim's struggle. I like the resolution better. I think this might go right above Batman TMNT. You can refresh me on Madness. Madness is the second of those specials. It's the Mad Hatter one with the three narratives, the Jim, Barbara, and Bruce narrative. Uh, I'm worse to putting this above that. I just think my heart ceiling is a lonely place of living. Yeah, that one's definitely better than the the Christmas one. (laughs) Uh, Which one was that again? The Christmas one is three. The Christmas one is Ghosts. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is Barbara is kidnapped by Mad Hatter on Halloween night. I could go above or below. I'm amenable to either. Yeah. I'm not here to cause trouble. You know, I think we're going to go above. I still think there's a there's a little more meat to the bones here. And I need I, I mean to not let my uh, Leslie Tompkins bias affect me because there's a little bit of Leslie in that story, too. That does it for tonight. Uh, next week, it's the conclusion of our trilogy of Thrace Told Tales stories, this time with Hugo Strange and his Monster Man. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes! Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bye, Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, and Giorgio Sregioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville! And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.